0: Hey, everyone, I have an exciting announcement. We recently secured a gift of $15,000 to match all donations given by the end of the year. As a fully self-funded project of the Commonwealth Club, we rely on supporters like you to bring this podcast to you every week. To support more climate conversations like this one, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to climateone.org slash donate. Your gift of any amount will be doubled. Thank you for listening and for your support. Now for this week's pod. What were the biggest climate stories of 2019? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. 2019 saw a number of significant events in the climate world. Wildfires, floods, wind, and extreme weather continued to batter the nation from California to Florida. There were firestorms in Congress and tweet storms from the White House. The rise of the youth climate movement, the advance of electric cars, and more melting in the Arctic. In the north of the state, the Kincaid
1: fire has scorched more than 76,000 acres. States of emergency have been declared in five states from Florida to Virginia.
2: President Trump attacked her today on Twitter saying Greta must work on her anger management problem. Chill, Greta, chill. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. How dare you?
0: On today's program, we wrap up the year with two reporters who've had their finger on the pulse of the climate movement for over 15 years. David Roberts writes about energy and climate change for Vox. Coral Davenport covers energy and environmental policy for the New York Times from Washington. For her, the year's biggest climate story came out of the Oval Office.
2: This year, um, we saw the Trump administration move to roll back the largest and most significant climate change regulation that's ever been put forth by the federal government, um, that was the Obama-era regulations on fuel economy rules. Those rules put in place by the Obama administration uh, would have cut about 6 billion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere. That's how much CO2 the U.S. alone emits in two years. So uh, the Trump administration is moving forward aggressively on on trying to undo that rule As, as part of doing it They are also basically going to war with the state of California. The state of California um, has the legal right to set its own state-level vehicle emission standards. And any state that wants to can also follow California standards. So President Trump has also uh, kind of made it a personal mission to make sure that his administration revokes uh, California's legal authority to do that. As he has worked to do so, California has sought to strike back. They cut a secret deal with four auto companies that agreed to actually break away from the industry and side with California against President Trump. This has led to this sort of giant war that's become very personal on the side of the president. He was furious and enraged and embarrassed when that happened. Um, And he's been trying to take it out uh, on California and all these other ways. It's split the auto industry itself in ways that we've never seen, We've never seen major auto companies sort of taking sides, one with the federal government and the other with the states. And so this just has repercussions that are about climate change. They're about the global auto industry there. It's about states' rights um, that absolutely has, you know, broader impacts for the federal-state relationship. So that that has really been one of the biggest stories that I uh, have covered this year.
0: How about David? What's one of the top stories that you uh, covered this year?
1: Oh, well, if I had to pick one, I would probably also go to California. And the one, the sort of story that sort of combined the most of my personal and professional interests is uh, the, the fires in California and the subsequent blackouts. PG&E to shut off electricity to more than
0: 700,000 customers. PG&E has to go out and inspect all the lines before they even think about
1: re-energizing those lines. Just a two-day outage could cost the California economy $2.4 billion. The utility also says it failed to notify 23,000 customers, including 500 with medical conditions, before shutting off their power. The inadvertent and deliberate blackouts in response... To the fires and then this sort of frenzied scramble on the part of California uh, officials to figure out what to do about it, uh, what to do, you know, where it is both or all of PG&E, California's other utilities, California's housing and land use plans, how its utilities are structured, The, the fires and the blackouts together just sort of implicate all these different systems in California uh, which have been sort of like uh, n- neglected so it's a it's a really fascinating puzzle to figure out exactly why what's happening is happening but it's also just a fascinating uh, puzzle how to put together a response that doesn't have California basically you know having the sort of electricity service of a developing nation for the for the you know, decades to come, they're saying now, like PG&E just did an, an internal report that just uh, the, the the results leaked where they said at its current rate of replacing their lines that these deliberate blackouts could rise by two to four times. We could have two to four times as many for the next decade or two, which is just insane to contemplate in the context of the world's... <laughs> you know the richest state in the world's richest country so that was my that was my big one
2: and if i could it's interesting I, I dave i love that you also brought up california um and there is absolutely california is such a big part of the climate story and there's absolutely a way that these two stories dovetail um it's a, it's very simple which is this california at this moment in many ways is exhibit a for the the real time impacts of climate change. And you know, I want to be clear, no one is saying that these specific wildfires are specifically caused by climate change, but there is a lot of data showing clearly that the impact of climate change is going to lead to larger and and longer wildfires in the west. So just as California is struggling with these deadly wildfires that are exacerbated by climate change, it's coming at the exact moment where the president is actively trying to take away California's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions in a way that that sets it as a national and international leader.
1: I mean, everything's happening in, in California. <laughs> everything's happening in, in one way or another in California. Another fascinating aspect of it to me is, you know, c- climate policy uh, has been sort of abstract for a lot of Americans for a long time. And there's lots of sort of, uh, you know, it's been a lot about big targets far off targets and big sort of grand uh, sweeping plans but what you're seeing in California is a very tangible way as coral said that that climate change is starting to bite but also that the things California needs to do to both prevent further climate change and to adapt to current climate change are things that people aren't necessarily going to like they're not going to be able to live wherever they want, you know, they're going to have to like wealthy Californian liberals who live in cities are going to have to, are going to have to accept more people moving in to their neighborhoods. You know, they're going to have to accept some density. We're going to have to cut down on car travel, you know, which is like a religious, <laughs> a religious right in, in California. You're not necessarily going to be able to live out in on the edge of the forest and expect your fellow citizens to build infrastructure to to serve you and expect your insurance company to cover you when you're at such high risk of a fire, you might not be able to plant the plants you want immediately around your house because of the need for fire breaks. You know, so we're sort of seeing ways that dealing with climate change on a real tangible ground level basis is going to be a lot more sort of like, it's not all going to be distant coal plants closing, you know, it's really going to hit home to people's personal behavior
2: and and what you were talking about Dave about the way in which you know something that is that is new is and this is just it's not just people in California i think the rest of the country is looking at California and saying you know, people who pay attention to this, oh, this is, this is, this is something terrible and, and people are sort of, it's clicking for more and more Americans. This is climate change playing out in real time. And one very new way that we are seeing that play out is the fact that for the first time in any presidential election in my life ever, we have seen climate change break through to become a top tier campaign issue.
0: I would declare a state of emergency on day one.
2: It is the threat to every living thing on this planet, and we are running out of
1: time. And I will do as president is to tell the fossil fuel industry that their short-term profits are not more important than the future of this planet. I refuse to postpone any longer taking on climate change.
2: I have been covering climate change in Washington for God 15 years. And, you know, every single election, I think, you know, this is going to be the one. This is going to be the time that, like, climate change breakthrough, And it never is. I'm always all prepared and then, you know, it's just crickets. And... For the first time, you know, not only in the Democratic primary, we're we're seeing candidates compete, at least rhetorically, to talk about who to show who cares more about climate change. We're also seeing concrete plans from a number of the candidates. Almost every single candidate has explicitly endorsed some kind of price or tax on carbon, something that Hillary Clinton was was too afraid to do when she ran for president as the nominee just four years ago. So all of that is very new, and I think that that um, it, it reflects polling showing, particularly that younger voters, for the very first time, rank the issue of climate change as a high concern for the first time. And I think that that is driven in a lot of ways by the fact that in the last few years, we are starting to see changes in our own lives, in our own economies, in our own backyards, that people can are, can connect to climate change as something that is real and now and affecting my life in a way that is not at all this sort of, you know, distant thing and, like, it's a moral obligation to care about it, but, you know, really I care about, like, who's going to cut my taxes. So that's that's a new thing this year, yeah.
1: We have to throw the, um you know, sort of the resurgent youth climate movement in there somewhere. It's hard to pick apart these causal threads on exactly what came together for for climate (laughs) you know like coral said to finally make this sort of long long forecasted (laughs) move to really being a priority issue in in a genuine way and not just a sort of lip service way but like actually people are responding on polls you know uh, uh primary voters are responding on polls spontaneously that it's a that it's a top tier issue it's just a a lot of things have come together these you know the, the california fires and all the hurricanes but also i think you can tie this into a larger trend which sort of i think shapes a lot of the top stories of the year which is this incredible sorting of america into into partisan camps. You know, this sort of this is the background condition that is shaping everything. So sort of like the right has gotten more right and the left has gotten more left. So the sort of crazy denial, the sort of denialism and the anti-regulation, sort of the anti-regulatory fervor that Coral was talking about earlier, that's all sort of hyper and new. But then the sort of left is also sort of hyper and new in its kind of un, unabashed embrace now not only of climate ambition, but, you know, Medicare for all and, and, and all the rest of it. It's just these two, these two Americas drifting apart and it's happening on climate like everything else.
0: Yeah. A whole generation of people who don't even know that the, there was a Graham-Rudman but, you know, by, or other bipartisan deals of the past. That Yeah, you're right. They've never seen anything like that. Uh, Coral Davenport, there is some talk about uh, there's a Re- solutions caucus now in the Senate uh, there's some rumblings of uh, pulse there for Republican interest in climate. Most of the people who support it are now out of office. Carlos Cabello, Ryan Costello, of course, you know, Trent Lodd and a lot of the elders of the party. Is there any hope there for some bipartisan deal on some narrow areas?
2: I I wouldn't expect legislation on climate or, you know, much else. Uh, it, it certainly in the next year, not in an election year. Um, but to your point that yes, there there are some interesting Republicans in that middle space. Um, there's a new bipartisan um, Senate climate caucus, and the rules of it are, are the same as uh, the ones of the, that defunct House uh, caucus that you talked about, which is that um, it was started by one Democrat and uh, one Republican. And, and so as you can imagine, I think there's there's a lot of Democrats that want to join it, but the rule is you no Democrat can join it unless they bring a Republican. So I think there's like eight members now. You know, so that means four Republicans. And when Republicans join this caucus, it's a very interesting sign that they um, recognize that this is an issue that polls well um, and, and has urgency among millennial voters. They're looking to that and they don't, there there are some Republicans um, from purple states that don't want to be seen as climate deniers or science deniers. That does not at this point translate into meaningful legislation. You know, there is a difference between saying, I'm not a science denier, um, you know, I'm in a climate caucus. Um, For that to translate into supporting you know, slapping a tax on CO two emissions, which is effectively an energy tax, that's that's still seen as a as a career ender for people, for, for for lawmakers in both parties. I mean, I think there's there's a willingness to say, I'm not a denier. I care about it, and and we see this in the House too. You know, there's these. Um, Uh, Republicans on the House Energy Committee who've started putting out press releases talking about the need to address climate change. But then you go to the step further and you're like, well, what does that mean? So it translates to these buzzwords that we've seen from these Republicans who are cautiously stepping into this space saying, I care about it. But then they're not embracing, they're not supporting current climate regulations. They're not supporting... Carbon taxes or prices—they're—they're they're not supporting um, rolling back existing subsidies on the fossil fuel industry. They talk—they use the word innovation, which, uh, you know, can, I sort of think can mean anything. You know, supporting technology. Well, what does that mean? There's not a lot of sort of bold, uh, brave commitment to meaningful policy. And I, but the the Republicans. In the Senate, in particular, Mitt Romney is an interesting one in this space. Um, Bill Cassidy of Louisiana, oil-rich state, but also also a state that's absolutely at the front lines that is losing football fields of of its own land every day to rising sea levels, is kind of interesting in this space. John Cornyn of Texas, who is the number two Republican in the Senate after Mitch McConnell, is has been part of these conversations. That is very new to me. So there is. You know, it's the same thing. I mean, Texas is also a state that has been hit hard by droughts that have been attributed to climate change by by peer reviewed science. Obviously, hit super hard by Harvey a couple years ago. You know, so so these even these oil Republican states, you know, senators from these places are are part of the conversation. I I think it's still a long time before that before you see meaningful leadership or, or, you know, a, a bipartisan breakthrough.
0: Matt Gates is a big Trump supporter. And, and he uh, he's spoken on Climate One about, uh, you know, climate and, and fossil fuels. I think maybe where there might be agreement is on adaptation, funding for seawalls, funding for infrastructure to, you know, deal with the impacts, but not perhaps getting at the at the cause. Every, every senator and member of Congress likes to see federal dollars coming into their state for infrastructure. Dave, you were going to say something.
1: Yeah, mostly I was just going to underscore everything Coral said. I think the the, the, the right attitude about this, I mean, <laughs> Coral and I have both been covering this for 15 years, and both, I think, will can recall, really starting in the early 2000s, more or less annual stories to the effect that, oh, like the young Republicans— care about climate change, they're going to pressure their elders and a few brave Republicans are beginning to speak up. And is this the beginning of a, you know, is this, is this the beginning of a pivot? And it's just the same story year after year for 15 years now, and the promised pivot never arrives. So at this point, I think skepticism is warranted.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about carbon pollution and the changing political climate. Coming up, whatever happened to the Green New Deal?
2: You know, as a rallying cry, it's clearly alive. As something that will translate into the actual policy solution to climate change, no, I I think there is severely diminished enthusiasm.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests are Vox reporter David Roberts and Coral Davenport of the New York Times. We're talking about the big climate and environmental stories they've been covering in 2019. In past election years, climate change has been the third rail of politics. Republicans have largely downplayed it or dismissed it altogether. Democrats have tiptoed around it. But as we head into 2020, the politics might be changing.
2: One of the most surreal moments of this whole past year was um, in July when President Trump decided to give a speech, a big speech at the White House in the East Room on the environment. And I I remember, you know, we got the notice that this was going to happen. And we just thought, what, what's going to happen? So he gave this speech. He talked about his devotion to clean air and water. He called himself a protector of public land. He... President Trump has taken unprecedented steps to open up public lands to drilling. He has signed off on the largest rollback of federal land protection in the nation's history. He cited his desire for clean water, but he is right in the middle of rolling back a major water protection rule, the waters of the U.S. Um, He described himself as a champion of the oceans, but his own policies have moved forward on opening up U.S. coastal waters for offshore drilling. He has promoted... Actually, no, they they're, they have worked on, tried to do something on plastic straws.
0: He <laughs> give them, give boasted, them that.
2: <laughs> yes, yes. He has been on the right side of the plastic straws, I think. Um, he boasted that CO2 emissions in the U.S. have gone down over the past decade at the same time that his administration is moving forward with undoing the major federal like regulations that have been put in place on carbon dioxide and withdrawn from the Paris Agreement. I mean, it... It was like 1984. And so w- when we covered that speech and we we talked to the people in the White House and the campaign about it, and here's what we were told, which is that the president giving that speech was the result, you know, came from the campaign. The Trump campaign was looking at the same polls that we are talking about and that these Republicans on the Hill have seen that show... Very specifically that younger Republican voters, millennial Republican voters who grew up being taught climate change in their basic science classes in the same way that you're taught like smoking is bad and who, you know, who are living with this, who are sort of, you know, the first generation to grow up in, on a planet where you can tr- truly experience the impact of climate change. The young Republican Republican voters care about this. So, so he has to be seen caring about the environment. And so they came up with this speech in which he talked about the environment, underscored by the fact that almost every single theme he talked about, his administration has moved to undo or remove protections. But the fact that it was seen as something that had to be talked about because because of the polls and because the politics said this is a good thing— I mean, that's sort of interesting. Like in 2020, you know, when the races are all that are happening, um, we are seeing seeing signs that the Trump campaign is going to try to find some way to present this president as caring about the environment, which they just didn't even bother with in 2016. That illustrates that it... It has truly risen, as you know. Okay, like in the same way, you have to have, you've got to have an economic policy, you got you have to have a healthcare policy. Well, now you have to have a climate policy.
0: Coral, you'll take. We heard a lot on the Green New Deal earlier in the year when it was announced by Ed Markey and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. You don't hear it about it much now. Of course, it's not going anywhere unless there's a new president. But is is it, is it still relevant? Is it still, you know, talked about in Washington?
2: Um. Not, uh, I mean, the Green New Deal is not even a bill, you know, it's, it's a resolution. It hasn't been voted on. It's not legislation, even if it were to be, you know, passed by the, even the Democratic led house, which it's not, Nancy Pelosi has no interest in it. It wouldn't do anything. It's literally saying, we think these things are important and good. That's, that is what the Green New Deal does. And. I think that and it contains, you know, when it first came out and, and AOC was, you know, sort of everyone wanted, you know, some of her um, exciting new energy. We saw a lot of these um, presidential candidates sort of jumping on board and saying, oh, I endorse that. And then without realizing that it, it contained, you know, just things so far beyond the scope of climate change, you know, guaranteed employment for all, just sort of all these all these things. And and then you really saw you saw a lot of a lot of these candidates back away from it, you saw a lot of lawmakers back away from it and say, "Wait a minute, what what even is this thing?" So, I think that excitement over the Green New Deal informed what the Democratic climate change Proposals are, but their proposals are are actual are actual policies, and 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 could be, you know, could turn into legislation or regulation. The Green New Deal is not that, and and I I also know that because the president has said it, the president and Republicans think that the Green New Deal is the best thing ever for them to go after. They think it is ridiculous. They think it is um, a liability for Democrats, and I know that there are democratic operatives on some of the campaigns who think that's true you know they sort of feel like why why did they come out with this thing why have we been saddled with this thing this is this is really hard to this is going to be very hard it's not very hard to defend for you know middle america voters um you know and and Nancy Pelosi was pretty disdainful of it i mean she she has you know if you want to get something through the house that's that's your way to go and she has no interest in in championing that, so I, I don't, as, you know, as a rallying cry, it's clearly alive as something that will translate into the actual policy solution to climate change. No, I, I, I think there is severely diminished enthusiasm.
0: So there's a disconnect between the people who are excited about it and the people who have power and can actually get something done. Barney Frank, for example, former congressman liberal, said uh, that the Green New Deal would be a loser in 2020 because it tried to do – uh, too much well let 's look at the specific uh proposals of of the candidates. How do you see them stacking up the the top democratic contenders in terms of their climate policy they There was a bit of a race of you know one trillion to five trillion to sixteen trillion in terms of the the budgets uh for their plans. but how do they stack up
2: well, you know you talked about the money um yes a lot of them a lot of them talk about spending a great deal of money none you don 't get that money unless Congress appropriates it. So that's something that is pretty difficult to translate. Um, from campaign promise to reality. Again, something that I said earlier and that I did think was interesting, that that climate town hall was brutal. It was like eight hours long and I watched the whole thing. Um, And as I wrote at the time, one of the things that I did think was very interesting was just about every single candidate embraced a carbon price, which is also something that's not in the Green New Deal. And I think that that's very important because if you talk to environmental economists who look at climate change as something that is fundamentally caused by the way we run our economy. We, we burn fossil fuels for energy to drive our cars and keep our lights on and keep our, keep our factories on. Um, if you want to change that, you need a solution that gets at sort of that core economic problem. And, you know, William Nordhaus, who won the Nobel Prize for economics for his work on the economic, economics of climate change, came up with this decades ago. The solution is you have to put a price or tax on carbon dioxide pollution and economists political economists environmental economists sort of across all stripes will say yes that's true like how much it should be how it should be structured is is still a matter that's open for debate um, but that's you know if you put a if you put a tax on the thing that you want less of you send a signal that permeates the entire market and the market the, for, the powerful forces of the market start working to make less of that because it's become too expensive and find cheaper alternatives, which is, in this case, make things that don't produce carbon dioxide less expensive. Make those make those cheaper and widely available. That's that's the sort of fundamental solution. The Green New Deal did not get at that sort of core economic idea, but just about every single Democratic candidate has. And that is that's pretty interesting, I think, because again, we we saw Congress try to do this during the Obama administration. Um, it fell flat. Uh, we saw members of Congress lose their jobs for embracing this. It died in the Senate because not enough Democrats would even support it, and so and that's why Hillary Clinton did not run on this. So the fact that we are starting to see. That that all these candidates are sort of saying up front, like, yeah, I support a carbon tax. Yeah, I support a carbon price. That, to me, was the most interesting takeaway from the debate. Uh, One other interesting takeaway that I've also gotten from some of the candidates' plans, and most most specifically um, Elizabeth Warren, is that this is very new and very radical, what she is proposing. She's proposing banning fracking. Not something that a president can do all by themselves. they they would a president could could impose a ban or a moratorium on fracking on federal lands. Um, they would need Congress to ban it on on private land, which is where most fracking takes place. That would shut down an a massive industry. You know that that is a radical proposal that would put people out of work. And would cut off access to a cheap and abundant source of fuel. I mean, that's a, a you know Elizabeth Warren. It's I it, I think it's even more radical in some ways than, than Medicare for all. I don't you know med. I don't know if it's gotten quite as much attention, but like the fact that we see these mainstream candidates embracing you know much more aggressive you know in the case of a carbon price, I think that's that's realistically the solution to the problem in the case of a ban on fracking it's it's sort of like wow that's a is a big extreme proposal that doesn't sort of seem to be freaking people out either as much so i i thought that was very interesting
0: yeah it's campaign rhetoric that would be really hard to do and would drive up the price of gasoline dave roberts your take on uh, on the campaign uh, promises of the candidates
1: well i mean they're all campaign promises right i mean most of most of what most of what is in all these plans would require cooperation from congress and as long as mitch mcconnell deploys the filibuster uh, on every bill of any substance congress is off off limits there might be something people can do through a, a budget reconciliation bill or or kill the filibuster maybe but then you can pass whatever can get votes from you know Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten cinema. so so all, all of this, <laughs> all of it is aspirational almost almost uh, all of it. The only thing I would say is and this and I, I want to make this point because I, I think I, I disagree a little bit with Coral about this this I think that the most sophisticated thinkers about climate policy have reasoned their way past a price on carbon. Not that they don't want a price on carbon, but I think this notion that a price on carbon is the one true solution, it's the only one that's legitimate among economists, it's the only one that will truly work. I think people are getting past that because, for one thing, they've noticed it's, a, it, it's, it's almost impossible to pass one anywhere of a size that would make a substantial difference. But also there are all these market failures. There are also very specific barriers to technologies in very specific areas. So actually, I think... Um, First of all, the Green New Deal does not not have a carbon tax in it. It does say in the resolution, put a price on on carbon pollution. It's very vague about how to do that, obviously. It just doesn't it doesn't foreclose the notion. But I think I, I think the right way to look at it is the way the Green New Deal looks at it, which is that a carbon a carbon price is at best one piece of a broad portfolio solution. And the other point I wanted to make is is it's is really revealing to me and interesting to me that sort of coral contrasts um you know a, a carbon price as being kind of the moderate sensible economic solution and and banning fracking as being radical i feel like this it, it, and it's also interesting that like joe biden has adopted net zero carbon by 2050 as as his rallying cry and and all the moderates now are rallying behind that as though that is a moderate alternative to the kind of radical things that Sanders and Inslee and Warren are producing, but the but the thing is, if you if you go in with your with your analyst's hat on and start pulling the string of net zero by twenty fifty and just follow it backward to what is going to be necessary to achieve that, you end up with radicalism. You can't have a massive fracking industry and have net zero carbon emissions. I mean, we're going to be able to bury some, some margin. I mean, mostly what we'd want to be doing is burying CO2 that we just captured from the air, but some of it we can capture from fossil fuel or, or industrial streams and bury. So it, it's not necessarily true that there's going to have to be zero fossil fuel, but it's going to be pretty close to zero. And it's certainly going to be not a giant, robust fracking industry. So So like Joe Biden and all these people who who want to claim that their plans are moderate or that a carbon price is moderate or that there's a moderate way to do this. I just I want to hear what is the moderate path to net zero by 2050. you got to get rid of fracking. It emits greenhouse gases. <laughs> Anything that emits greenhouse gases has got to go. The radicalism is built into the problem. And all I see like Democrats doing with their different plans and their different sort of rhetorical strategies around this is figuring out different ways of talking around that. But like sooner or later, there's only so long we can walk forward in this weird sort of double mind of sort of, you know, these kids shouting for radicalism and then Joe Biden pretending that he's moderate and, and, and you know, this sort of cynic or this House caucus pretending that it's moderate on it. Sooner or later, you got to get down to brass tacks and policies. And you're going to find, I think, when you do that, that if you really want to get to net zero by 2050, you're doing things that are extreme relative to American politics. There's just no way around that. There's, we're, we've run out of time to sort of wave our hands at distant targets anymore. Like, if you want to do that by 2050, you got to start now and go pedal to the metal.
0: You're listening to a conversation about the biggest climate news of 2019. This is Climate One. When we come back, what stories were not talked about enough?
2: I, I really want to see more coverage holding other countries accountable for what they are and aren't doing.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests today are reporters Coral Davenport of the New York Times and David Roberts of Vox. We're talking about the climate stories that made headlines in 2019. Let's turn now to news that should have had more play. What were the most undercovered climate stories of the past year?
2: Something that that I always want to see more coverage of um, is we cover here in the US um, we cover what our government is doing and not doing and changing um, on climate change. I I really want to see more coverage holding other countries accountable for what they are and aren't doing. China obviously is the largest emitter in the world. But it also is in the process of implementing a cap and trade system. And it's always talking about it about, you know, it's it's sort of using the moment of of the US pulling back on, on climate leadership to say, well, we are taking the lead. But I, I think, you know, of, of the of the countries that are the, the you know, 10 or 15 largest emitters, um, I think they're enjoying kind of being able to criticize the U.S. for pulling back, but there's not really anyone holding them accountable. And I think coverage of what are the emissions and policies, like actually, you know, what do those add up to um, in other countries is something that, you know, we could all see more of, as opposed to just what their leaders are saying about climate change.
1: Yeah, I tend to think that, the stories that get undercovered generally are kind of uh, incremental trends. Sort of trends are kind of building and building and building, but there's rarely kind of one headline event to sort of pull out and make a story out of. So, so two of those that I've been trying to cover and surface this year. One is uh, the increasing attention in climate circles to difficult to decarbonize sectors like industry, uh, you know, high temperature stuff for industry or long haul shipping or long haul trucking, aviation. You know, there's this sort of, you know, 10 to 20 percent of the economy that we really don't know how to decarbonize, even, you know, kind of theoretically. And there's just the it's kind of front end of a really large, I think is going to be a really large wave of attention and and sort of innovation and investment into all that stuff. It's pretty, it's pretty exciting because it's just sort of interesting on a technical you know, a technical level. And and, and the other one is also an uh, energy technology story, which is the sort of slow spread of distributed energy technologies, meaning, you know, sort of small scale behind the meter stuff, your EV, your solar panels, your batteries, all the stuff that customers own. This kind of stuff has just been not very... In, in a not very planned way, it's just been kind of drifting out to the public for years. But now we're seeing, for instance, in California, a bunch of trends converging that are going to really uh, accelerate that. And I think that the changes that that is going to spark in the electricity system are just enormous and fundamental. And we're only sort of we're only beginning to grasp, I think, what that's going to involve in terms of ownership, in terms of how utilities manage things, in terms of how utilities are regulated, in terms of how ordinary people interact with energy, in terms of just the the kind of software and sophistication and the efficiency of use we're able to achieve once, you know, all these sensors are everywhere. We know where every electron is at all times and and we know the weather much better things to you know better computing power and we know and we have awareness and visibility into every appliance or house or building in an entire area just all that information and computing power is going to make energy use and distribution just so much more sophisticated and interesting and it's sort of happening around the margins really quick and I think it's going to really bust into bust into the mainstream in the next couple of years.
0: Certainly, the wildfires in California spurred people's interest in yes, getting their Tesla the power much. walls and their storage, and, <laughs> very and also a lot, a lot of. A lot of people bought diesel generators as well. The states are doing uh, look to as uh, you know, vehicles of progress when the federal government is going in a different direction. This year we saw Ohio go backward with, uh, with the law, but New York, Washington, Oregon, and Colorado took big steps forward. So perhaps, Dave, you could address what's happening at the state level because some significant things did happen in 2019 at the state level.
1: I mean, well, two things. One is, you know, in the 2018 elections, not only did Democrats uh, retake the House and, you know, kind of put the brakes on the worst of the federal stuff, but they took a lot of, you know, they took a lot of. Governor's offices. They took a lot of state legislatures. They won uh, trifectas, meaning the governor's office and both houses of legislature in I think like, several, like eight new states. I'm making that up. It might not be eight, but it was a, a bunch of new states. So, and and consequently, <laughs> in the wake of all those Democratic victories, you see a wave of incredibly good, ambitious climate policy coming out of these states and cities. Washington State. Nevada, Colorado, New Mexico, California, New Jersey, I mean, on and on down the line, basically. And some of these policies, like Washington, uh, it's particu- I would particularly sort of uh, uh, pick out Colorado and Washington just on the policy basis, just just really thoughtful and detailed policy, getting really down into the weeds of, you know, sort of like performance incentives for for utilities, like it's clear from these experiences of these democratic states that there are a lot of democratic policy wonks out there in government who have been thinking about this a long time and haven't really had any way to implement it or try any of it. So there's just like a lot of great ideas laying around in Colorado. I mean, Colorado passed, like, it was like 15 energy bills, just uh, up and down. So so two things I think we can learn from that. One is, um, you know, there's just lots of good policy available. There's lots of low-hanging fruit. There's tons of progress that can be made at an economic benefit, at an economic and political benefit. Like, it's going to—there's we we there's lots to do before we get to even the hard questions. Um, and two— It just seems striking to me if there was a trend this clear in some other area of culture, it would be weird if it went unnoticed. Namely, there's all this discussion over how we can pass good climate policy, how we can pass good clean energy policy, what's the right message or what's the right coalition, what's the right campaign, what's the right tactic. And we have a really clear example. We have about 20 examples of cities and states that passed comprehensive good climate and clean energy policy. And the one thing they all had in common is that they elected Democrats. They elected Democrats in numbers sufficient to overwhelm Republican resistance. That is the one thing they all have in common, and not a single one was led by Republicans. So, so, you know, you can lament all you want about whether climate and clean energy ought to be partisan issues or whether they're still going to be partisan issues in the future or whether that might change or anything else. But what you can't dispute is that on the ground, in practice, it is a super partisan issue in that when you elect Democrats, they do it. And when you elect Republicans, they don't. Coral Davenport, you agree?
2: I do. Yes, that's, that, I actually think uh, that's a great and depressing way of putting it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's my specialty, Coral.
0: Speaking of depression, I want to end on a, on a personal note, something I know that, that Dave Roberts wrote. Uh, I vividly remember when you burnt out and walked away a few years ago, Dave, and said, this is too much. And you went away and you came back. How do you personally, and this is like I struggle with this myself, deal with, you know, covering such a doom and gloom topic, what's perceived to be a doom and gloom topic every day? So, you know, looking ahead to an election year, how do you personally handle covering such a heavy issue?
2: Dave, do you have an answer? <laughs> I mean,
1: <laughs> I, we we both get asked this. We both get asked this all the time, and never yeah. have a good answer. I mean, to me, it's worse. Like to me now, um, Michelle Goldberg just had a great column in the New York Times op-ed page about democracy sadness, basically, or democracy depression. I forget how she put it, but it's this sort of, in addition to all the other sort of bat, psychic battering that that it that it feels like just following the news. These days, there's a real sadness as we're watching our U.S. democracy crumble around us. And then to me, there's also climate sadness, right? As we're watching, you know, we're really living through on almost a year by year basis, the last chance to avoid the worst slipping away like on a day-to-day, year-to-year basis. Like these are really the crucial years and we're not doing anything. We're not using them. So to me, like whatever it was, I was overwhelmed by five years ago. (laughs) It's a thousand times worse now. I feel like I'm watching U.S. democracy die and watching the world kind of sail into catastrophe just uh, in front of my eyes all the time. And it's really like, I don't have a great coping strategy other than compartmentalization, you know, and like bad habits. I don't know that anybody, but I will say that like, one of the, one of my great fears is that so many of the dynamics in, in terms of both U.S. democracy falling apart and the climate falling apart is that so many of the dynamics are self-reinforcing. They get worse over time. Like I I think this period of time is going to seed so much trauma in people in ways that we don't even really understand yet. A lot of stuff is just getting shoved down right now, you know, and shoved down and tucked away because it seems like every day is kind of like a mobilized panic. Everything's going wrong day, we just don't have time to sit with anything. So a lot of a lot of stuff's just getting shoved away and it's going to come out in coming years and people who are like recovering from trauma or burnt by trauma are not the kind of people who are inclined to like look at the future with optimism and get up off the couch and fight you know like so many of these dynamics climate makes the psychic problem worse and the psychic problem makes climate worse and like climate disasters make people more fearful and, and uh, you know, fearful and anxious and fearful, anxious people tend to do less <laughs> to to mitigate climate change. They tend to do more to sort of pull up walls and and, you know, and treat their country like a lifeboat. So I just feel like there are a lot of self-reinforcing negative cycles going on. And I and I honestly don't know how to cope with them and don't know when there's going to be respite honestly or if there ever will be again in our lives
2: that was super depressing Dave. <laughs> even that was even more depressing depressing you, well yeah you just you brought in like the idea of seeding trauma that's uh it's like a fresh new whole dimension of uh depression that i hadn't even that you've now given to me to think about <laughs> um i i don't i don't have particular coping mechanisms um one one way that I one, way, one, one concept that that sources bring up to me from time to time in Washington when we talk about sort of the intractability the the partisan divide over climate, like how is anything ever gonna happen um I do have a sense that that as we have the first generation of children who grow up um in a world where they absolutely are personally affected by climate change. I think it becomes so obvious that, of course, of of course, this is something we have to do. Um, And I I think that there won't be a policy solution until the problem has become so severe that it it has hurt or affected an entire generation. I think that might be what it takes for it to be something that inevitably becomes policy. Right. I think that does happen in, in my lifetime, but at that point, you know, a a lot of pretty severe damage is baked in. Um, I I'm named after coral reefs. My parents were scuba divers. (laughs) Um, you know, my, my kid is not, my two year old is not going to be able to snorkel or scuba dive in the coral reefs that inspired my parents to name me. They're already dead and gone. Um, they're in, they're in Okinawa, like they're already bleached. Um, so he's going to grow up in that world, but he he will know that. And so, you know, if it happens, if the if significant policy happens, whether it's radical or or, or whether what ra- is radical doesn't seem radical, I see a window for that happening realistically in the next ten or fifteen years. Um, really bad stuff will have been baked in, but the the sort of apocalyptic future that is laid out to us in some of these reports is averted. Um, okay. All right, I can live my life, and I can read books, and talk to people, and have a family, and do what I can. You know, like I can still i I can still have a good life in that world, um, even if the coral reefs are gone.
0: You've been listening to Climate One and a wrap up of the big climate news from 2019. My guests were Coral Davenport, energy and environmental policy reporter for The New York Times, and David Roberts, energy and climate reporter for Vox. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Quick reminder that as a nonprofit, we rely on the generosity of individuals like you to produce these podcasts every week. We hope you'll consider making a tax-deductible donation to support Climate One, which will be matched up to $15,000. Go to climateone.org donate, and thank you. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.